let's move on to the election material. All right, we are picking up with Hezekiah. Well, we left off with Hezekiah. We'll get through Josiah. Uh, on Thursday, what we'll do is go over the exile on uh, the Persian period uh, on Tuesday, and then we'll take our exam next Thursday on 99.99% Um, we see more evidence of this wine production here 
Um, this is about five miles north of Jerusalem in the late 8th, 7th century BCE. This is the time of Hezekiah. We begin to see olive oil installations, wineries, people preparing for something. A lot of industrialization. Let me show you another slide here if I can get my cursor. Again, uh, these are all this. Today's lecture, Hezekiah and Josiah's lecture, are both online. Um, just, I mean, we're not talking a long way away. Here's the old city of Jerusalem, right? And then at Tanyael, we have uh, other farmsteads. You see these unwalled areas where people had farms, and what appears to what appears to be happening is they were taxed. Right? And one of the ways you can pay your taxes is with what you grow. So you could make grapes, you could make uh, olives, olive oil, you could do all these things, and it would bring it to the king. Now, how do we know that these items were brought to the king? How do we know that this was kind of a, a, like what the United States is going to have to go through, as much as we all hate taxes? There's going to come a day that we're going to have to start paying more taxes in order to pay off the services we're getting, or not have the services. Right? There, there's a decision that has to be made. Now, are we being invaded by a foreign country? No. But there comes a day when you've got to make a decision. And apparently the decision was made, we've got to tax folks, we've got to bring in as much stuff as we can to prepare for what's about to come. The way that we know that that's what was going on is we find lots of these jars with seal impressions on them. Do you see them here? Jars with seal impressions here. Okay. And what these seals say is, remember, Hebrews read right and <coughs> left, right? So lamella. L-M-L-K. L meaning two or four, and Melech meaning what? King. So these are, these appear to be jars that were stamped or sealed that were for the king. Right, so I wouldn't necessarily, there's an oil that I'm using and my uh, farmstead, I wouldn't necessarily have that. But the stuff that I'm gonna actually seal and give as my tax, here it is. And of course, I would get a receipt in return, a little ostracism saying, I believe paid my, my tax to the king. We start seeing a lot of these jar handles in and around Jerusalem, specifically at a place called the Mount Rachel. Okay? And with these, we also see this other set of letters, MMST, Mamshids, or Mameshit, or something, we're not sure how it's pronounced. And the big, the big question is, what is this city? What is this place? It's like, a, like on, on a dollar bill, you know, how it has the mint mark on it, it tells you where this actual dollar was minted. We begin to see this. The problem is we don't know where this city is. It could mean any city, because we don't know what Mamshids or Mameshids or whatever, however you pronounce these four things. We don't know what city specifically this was referring to in the ancient world. We do know that we find a lot of these stamp impressions and seal impressions at Ramat Rahel. So the, the latest theory is that uh, Ramat Rahel served as an administrative center in the late 8th century. This is where people would bring their tithes, bring their taxes, and they would be processed there. What else do we know about Jerusalem is, and so you should know Lamella. Lamella jar handles are a good indication of some kind of large administrative program bringing in taxes and receipts in preparation for something. We also see, as Assyria is going through and just wiping people out to the north, um, that there's a 400% increase in the size of Jerusalem's population. From about 8,000 people to about 40,000 people, which means the old city of David has to expand not only to the Western Hill, uh, pardon me, this is, this is what it was about 900 BC before, before the expansion. The next slide will show you how it expands. But remember, we're talking about the city of David and the Temple Mount. <coughs> and we also note that the, um, Judah's population um, is from 6 to about 30% of the, the entire population of, of the region. Specifically, let me move to the next slide here. No, no two slides. Everybody have this here? One of the things you begin to see when there's an external threat is people begin to migrate into small cities, walled, defensive, defensible cities. Okay. Uh, Assyria is going through and wiping out the countryside, so you flee to the city. You leave everything behind, you flee to some place where there's protection. And that changes um, basically the makeup of the folks. Oh yeah, that's what I want. Okay, you see this here? So this 
way to the north. In fact, this is where we think we find the broad wall, the broad wall being uh, a very, very wide defensive wall we find in what is today the middle of the old city of Jerusalem. But at the time, it was just an expansion of the wall. So I think the first or second week, we had a question about how do we know which walls were where. Well, usually, its walls go outward, and they go out for, for, from the city of David. And at this wall, you find evidence that, um, and we're talking about these jar handles and things like that, that show that it was about this time this wall was built. Why was it built? Probably because this Assyria threat. So somebody is king, Hezekiah in Jerusalem, and they see a threat, so they begin to add defenses, not only to protect the city, but also to try to accommodate all of these people that are coming in from the countryside. So this is 200 years later. Jerusalem has gone from this little area to all over here. Okay. Questions? Thank you. 
Manasseh in 2 Kings 21, but as we're going to look in a little bit, Josiah in 2 Kings 22 and 23. Religious reforms. Basically, all these different people are coming into the city, meaning they're bringing with them all these, uh, all these different religious ideas, and the king says, no, 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 no. Unlike modern cities today, which are pretty diverse, and you can find little bits of all different kinds of religions, Josiah says, we're going to have one religion. We're going to have one orthodoxy. You either do it our way or you're dead. Right? So it doesn't speak much for religious tolerance in today's terms. Basically, he said, you come here, here's how we're going to worship. And we'll talk about that when we talk about Josiah. But you get this kind of this uh, very conservative um, religious style, orthodoxy. This is the way we do it here versus all these diverse areas that, uh, that were brought with the people who came into the city. Um, urban versus rural, that's basically what we're describing. Cosmo versus traditional, right? Where do you go out when you go out in the evenings, those of you who go out? Right? Where, where do you go? Do you go, to, do you go to Sunset? Do you go to Hollywood? Do you go to Santa Monica? Do you go to Big Bear? You know, where, where, do you, where do you go? Do you, do, you, or do you long for the countryside? Or do you go to places where, it's, where there's a lot of people, where you can meet people? These are all different kind of uh, demographic differences between kind of people who are from the country and people who are from the city. I lived here five years before I ever went to Hollywood. I, I just, it was, I, I didn't care about it. I didn't care about that. I liked Malibu, it was quiet. Malibu's where you go if you live in LA where you don't want to see, be around people. I liked it there, but and now, now I, I go all over the place. I won't tell you where, but I go all over the place. <laughs> Dresden's not a bad place. Everybody's been with Dresden. Uh, it's not going to keep going there because you're not there. <laughs> anyway. Um, and then, of course, the whole idea of centralization of power. One of the biggest problems we see in modern politics today, Republicans and Democrats, one of the biggest differences, Republicans accuse Democrats of trying to let the government take over everything. Centralization of power, federalization of everything, healthcare, everything, right? Versus this idea of, when you're in the country, it's kind of just me and my gun and my hounds, right? <laughs> I don't need police, right? I, I'm my police. And we got our own doctor, or at least a vet, that can take care of things. Kind of this idea of self-sustenance when you're in a country. But in a city, in an urban setting, it's all very centralized. So all of these problems are kind of thrown together as all these people from Jerusalem, from the countryside, move into the city. One of the things we begin to see is class differentiation, specifically due to craft specialization. Okay? So on a farm, what you often have, and keep in mind, this is, what, 2,700 years ago? So you would have your farm, your estate, they have all your servants, you'd have a blacksmith, you'd have, uh, you have people that work the fields, you'd have people who do your cooking, and everybody kind of works together on this big kind of family estate type thing. Um, so you have all these different things. But once you move into the city, you can't afford to have all these different people, right? There's not enough space, there's not enough room. So you've got to have specialization of craft. So the guy, so when you go to New York, right, very rarely do you find uh, one shop that does everything. You've got to go over there to get your groceries, and you've got to go over there to do your specialty store. And we see that in cities. Whereas in, in kind of country towns, you can kind of go to like Walmart, right? And super Walmarts or these places. Um, what's the name of the place that has everything up in Portland? Fred, Fred Myers, anybody? Fred Myers, you need get everything in one store. Groceries, everything. You don't have that in, in major, major urban settings. Okay. One of the things, the reason I bring up the social, the class stratification in the social settings is because we're going to begin to see the prophets. When you take a religion class or a Hebrew Bible class, the prophets are always speaking against us. They're always condemning the cities because they don't treat their poor fairly. Social justice is not just something that Glenn Beck likes to ridicule. Social justice is this idea that um, you need to treat everyone among you the same. Part of that is because some of these people didn't grow up in the city and don't have well-connected networks. They were thrown into the city. They don't want to be in the city, but they're there. And now they've got to do what they can to survive. So you should try to be kind to them and not uh, discriminate against marginalized folks. And the, the reason that we see so many prophetic texts talking about be good to the widow, be good to the orphan, uh, be good to the resident alien, right? people who are from somewhere else who are living here. The reason we see be kind to them is because the people weren't treating them kind. They were forgetting about them, not taking good care of them. So all of these problems arise 
when you've got this Assyrian threat? It's all a, such a great essay question. If I were to ask, what are some of the social and demographic problems uh, as a result of the Assyrian menace in the late 8th century, 730, 720 BCE? And you could rattle off religious problems, the size of Jerusalem expanding, things like that. Great, great question. Um, we also see physical, physical changes. The refugees from the Assyrian military campaign in the north, <coughs> um, they're all starting to locate in, to the north of Jerusalem. Remember I said last time, the way that you pay your soldiers is after your soldiers go through and destroy <coughs> everyone and kill them and raise them and rape them and all of this stuff, then you, you reward them by saying, okay, now you can have their land. So it's an incentive to kill all these folks because you're going to end up getting paid with their land. So as these people continue to settle up north, nobody wants to live next to people who just killed all your friends. So again, they move into Jerusalem. We talked about urbanization. Central, this is kind of a duplicate slide, but I'm going to throw it out. Um, and Jerusalem is now a real city. So keep in mind, it's not till the late 8th century, 7, 701 BCE, that Jerusalem like a full-fledged city with a lot of people, craft specialization, defensive walls, Right? Up until then, it's just kind of been this, this place that nobody really cared about. But it's the last place still standing. So if you're in that area, that's where you can be. Okay? Question? <coughs> we talked about one of the preparations that Hezekiah made was creating the broad wall. I told you it was a big thick defensive wall. This is it right here. You see it? That's a guy. That's a guy standing on this wall. It's a big wall for that time. Big wide wall. And you can read about it in Isaiah 22. Um, we also know about Hezekiah's water thing, right? He, remember uh, Professor Heimer uh, was up there and talked to us about how uh, after, even though they did call him a rudimentary water system, Hezekiah came through as a part of his process of preparing the city and built a new channel, a new water system, an expanded the water system. And of course, we're going to look in just a minute at an inscription that we, we just looked at very briefly earlier, but this tunnel inscription talks about the way the tunnel was created. And then as we've already mentioned, that you've seen on slides, the Lamellic, the For the King, For the King, uh, slide impressions, and the Royal Storage Jars. So all of this archaeological evidence um, is evidence that is in addition to the textual evidence that we have from the Hebrew Bible that talks about, yes, there was an Assyrian menace, and yes, Hezekiah appeared to be standing up to them, and uh, he was preparing. He was doing all the things that a good government should do to prepare for war, at least a defensive war. Mulholland Drive. Mulholland was the first director of the Department of Water in 
right? The winners write history. So you're going to see a lot of text against the northern ten tribes, that Israel kingdom, and, and in support of Judah. And you're going to see condemnations of every other kingdom around. What are they trying to convince you? What's the biblical text trying to convince people to do? Worship one God, be, be faithful to the king, right? Um, specifically, worship one God and keep his laws. A lot of what we see written in the Bible is to try to promote and defend the Judean monarchy. So please don't ever uh, conclude that, well, the Bible said it, it must be true. The Bible is trying to convince you of something. And the same goes for the New Testament, by the way. Right? The New Testament isn't objective history. The New Testament plainly states that it is, it is being written down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. It's specifically written to convince you of something. So in both in both books, it's, it's not trying to, it's not even pretending to be objective history. The Bible's trying to convince the reader of something. Okay? This is why archaeologists have, uh, have always fighting this battle of, okay, uh, an archaeologist might be a person of faith and therefore might want to see the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament or both as authoritative. But then they also have to be good scientists. And they need to say, no, just because the Bible says something, you know, doesn't, doesn't mean you have to accept it as true. Just like just if the Quran says something or just the Buddhist scriptures or Bhagavad Gita or the Ramayana or any other doctrine, you have to go with the archaeological evidence that we have. And sometimes they match up perfectly and sometimes they don't. And this is the dilemma. This is the dilemma between people who study biblical texts or religious studies and science. And I'll point out the differences, as I have, and I'll point out the similarities. <coughs> All that is to say, we begin to see an explosion of writing in the late 8th century, which sets the tone for, for people that are going to be dominated, not by a set of kings, but by a set of laws. Okay? Which is why I'm making a big deal out of it. This is important, and I'm just going to do a little segue here just for a second. Um, not a segue, a, um, what's it called when you Digression, a brief digression. As an example of this, how you read a text tells, uh, tells people a lot about how you, uh, what you believe, or at least your ideology, okay? So for instance, around this time period, uh, we have events recorded in the Bible. Pardon me. We have events recorded in the Bible that are said to have taken place around this time period. Isaiah chapter 7 is a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah talking about somebody in the late 8th century BCE. Okay. Same with Isaiah chapter 9, same with Isaiah chapter 11. The Assyrians are coming, and they need a strong king that will stand up to the Assyrians and, and make them go away, defeat the Assyrians, at least defend Jerusalem. So you get Isaiah making prophecies like, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us, right? Or for uh, to us a child is born, right? Or a shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse. Remember, Jesse was whose father? <coughs> David's father's name was Jesse. David created Jesse. Uh, Jesse created David. David was the great king. There was a promise in 2 Samuel 7 made to David that there will always be a king on his line. So any king will have to come out of David, right? That's where the promise was made. Now I ask you a question. To whom are these three prophecies referring? A lot of Christians would say, what? Jesus. And my question is, who's Jesus? I haven't read anything about Jesus. I think I'm going to read something about 700 years from now about Jesus. To whom are these three prophecies referring? Well, what's the context of the prophecies? The Assyrians are coming. Everybody's getting destroyed. Everybody's fleeing towards Jerusalem. We don't know what's going to happen. A strong king that will rule them. A strong king that will rule them. That's what that's what he's talking about. Who's that king? Remember, the king is the anointed one. Any Mashiach has to be anointed, right? And that's the king. So to whom are these prophecies referring? Now, I'm not going to read all of these, but they're in your notes. Isaiah chapter 7, the context is this. It's a prophecy of deliverance from Assyria. The Assyrians are coming, the Assyrians are coming, the Assyrians are coming. And they bring in Isaiah, and Isaiah says, no, we're going to survive. Here's why. Look, a young woman is with child.
child and shall bear a son, and shall call him Emmanuel. Shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse good from evil. What happens? What, what's that point in a Jewish life when you know the good difference between good and evil? A bar mitzvah, which means you're about when? What age? Yeah, so 13 years from now, we're going to be okay. A decade from now, we're going to be all right. For, uh, before the child knows how to refuse uh, good from evil, the land before, uh, be, uh, before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring on you and your people and your ancestral house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim, the part of Judah, the king of Assyria. So it's obviously about an Assyrian context. What he's saying is, yes, I know the threat looks very devastating, but in about 10 to 13 years, a child will be born and he'll be able to eat his own curds and his own honey, meaning he'll grow up on his farm, he'll grow up on his own land. Let's look at the next one. Isaiah 9. Also, a prophecy of deliverance from Assyria. Okay? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of deep darkness, on them a light to shine. Keep in mind the prophets were poets, right? At least Isaiah was. So he doesn't just come in and say, uh, my prophecy to you is that we will survive. What he says is, now the people have seen a great light. I know it's dark, but there's a great light, right? And we're going to be delivered. How? For a child will be born to us, a son is given, authority rests upon his shoulders. He is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. Right there in the middle of Isaiah 9 in the late 8th century. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness for on and on and ever more. God will do this. Let's look at another one. Isaiah 10. And I'll skip down. A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse. The branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord will be on him, spirit of wisdom and understanding. He'll grow in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then, once he's king, a lion will lie, uh, the wolf will shine, uh, lie down with the lamb. A, a leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf, the lion, and the fatling together. A little child shall leave them. A young king. Right? He will not hurt and destroy a mind only mountain. So my question to you once again is, in the context, to whom are these three prophecies referring? This guy. <laughs> what we're going to see happen is 700 years later, people are going to be scrambling. Rome is in control. We're going to get to this point in this class. I just fast forwarding here. It's like an episode of Lost, right? We'll flash forward. 700 years from now, the Romans are going to be in control. Uh, the Romans are going to be occupying and controlling uh, Jerusalem and the area. And these people are going to be saying, now what? Where's our prophet now? Where are the prophets? They're gone. Because they're now people of the book, abiding by laws. Right? Now what do we do? So they begin to look back at the old prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, right? and Ezekiel, and these guys. And they begin to reinterpret prophecy. Get this concept down, because we're going to be talking about it for the rest of this class. <coughs> after the late 8th century BCE, what's, or pardon me, after the destruction of Jerusalem, spoiler alert, Jerusalem's about to get destroyed, probably next, probably Thursday. Um, after Jerusalem gets destroyed, and that promise appears to have been broken, remember? Aaron uh, uh, of David will sit on the royal throne in Jerusalem forever. And then when Jerusalem gets destroyed and the monarchy gets exiled, that promise appears to be broken. From that point on, the faithful, the faithful, Jew, faithful Jews, Israelites, whatever you want to call them at the time, will begin to reinterpret that promise. And one of the ways you reinterpret that promise is you look back at the early prophecies and you say, okay, that may have once uh, applied to Hezekiah, but could it not also apply to someone else? Could it be an ongoing prophecy? And we're going to see different groups of people reinterpret prophecies that were considered canonical, considered scripture by all Jews at a later date, uh, to apply to their own new savior. For instance, at Qumran, right? They have this, they, they go back and they read all the prophecies, and they say, no, 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 that may have applied to Hezekiah, but it also is foretelling the coming of the teacher of righteousness, who will deliver us as a people. And the Christians are saying, what? Well, yeah, we'll look back, and we're going to find a deliverer. There's no more real king of the lineage of David, right? Because that's gone. But there'll be a new king. His name will be 
Jesus. And they go back and they try to take all of these different prophecies and apply them to their Messiah, Jesus. What I want you to know for this class is, in the context that this was written, these prophecies were originally uh, about Hezekiah. The entire New Testament goes back and tries to read, hear me out here, read Jesus into prophecy. They try to go back and look at ancient prophecies and read something and go, oh, that sounds like it applies to Jesus. That must be a prophecy of Jesus. And that's how the process went. And it wasn't just the Christians doing this. Like I said, Qumran are doing the same thing. They're going back and reading the prophecy. Something that the Christians would never, because it talked about something else, and they would go, ooh, this sounds like it talks about our guy. That must be a prophecy of our guy. And other, there were lots of messiahs around the time of Jesus. These guys were all going back to scripture, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and they're saying, ooh, no, this prophecy is actually about me. Right? And they present themselves as a messiah. It's a very common thing. The Christians weren't the only ones doing this, okay? Um, we need to move on. Uh, I have a couple of texts here um, that I want to show you. Basically, you will note, if you read your Bible, that Isaiah 36 through 39 is actually very nearly word for word repeated elsewhere. Who knows where? Which is another way to talk smack. What's he saying? I'll give you 2,000 horses if 
You've even got 2,000 people in your army that can ride it. I'll give it to you. I'll give you the horses if you can show me 2,000 soldiers. So he's kind of just talking smack, trying to scare him. Okay? So the, the Hezekiah's little uh, entourage there is not all that bright. So what do they say? Uh, how can you revolt over the Lord of Verse 11. Verse 11. For Eliakim, Shedna, and Yoah said to the Roshachah, Please, speak to us uh, speak to us in Aramaic, for we understand it. But don't speak to us in the language of Judah, which is Hebrew, right? Um, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Think about that. Think about what he's asking, right? From naked gun, right? Please stop firing the gun while you're talking. I can't hear you. Why would you say that, right? Please don't talk to us in Hebrew because you're scaring our people. They can understand Hebrew. But they don't understand Aramaic. Well, we do. So if you're going to taunt us, please taunt us in Aramaic because you're scaring our people. Really? Really? So, of course, as any good smack talker would do, they seize on that. And the Rav Shekha says, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not with the people sitting on the wall? And then he goes ahead and starts talking to them. Who are doomed with you to eat their own crap and drink their own pee. Right? And King James cleans this up and makes it uh, dung and urine. In fact, the Hebrew scribes tried to clean this up. Once the Bible, uh, later on, there's these people called the Masoretes, right? And these guys were in charge of kind of uh, copying the text and making sure that it never changed from generation. We're talking about a thousand years uh, uh, these, uh, AD, uh, CE, like a thousand years ago. Okay? And these guys were in charge of making sure that the text is pronounced right and copied right. And by the time they got this text, it was already set. You couldn't go back and erase the Bible. But I mean, there were times when you could change the text of the Bible. At Qumran, they do this all the time. They just rewrite the Bible. Not a problem. But there was a point much later where they kind of fixed the canon where you couldn't change any of the letters. But these Nazarenes didn't like the fact that the word poo and the word for urine were in the Bible. So they would do this thing called karekati. And what this means is um, there's the words that you read, right, Kalei, to, to call, to read out loud, and then uh, there's the words that you read, and then there's the words that you, pardon me, there's the words that are written, the Kati, the things that are written, but then there's the things that you say, the Kalei, which, which is called out, because you always read out loud. There's no such thing as silent reading or silent praying in the ancient world. Okay? So, for instance, when we come to the divine name, you'll never hear a Jew who's reading the text say Yahweh. They'll always say what? Adonai. Even though one of them is written, you say something else. Kare, written. Uh, uh, Ketiv, written. Pardon me, Kare. It's called a Kare Ketiv. Well, here in the Hebrew Bible, if you read your English Bibles, not the King James, which you read, uh, you'll oftentimes see this uh, say, uh, who are doomed to eat their own filth, is the word that's put there. And, uh, and drink, and then they have this nice expression, the water's at your feet. <laughs> right? Because they didn't, once it became a holy book, they didn't want it to say crap and you know, pee. So what they changed it to is filth, and you know, uh, you know, the, the water's at your feet, which is a, a euphemism for urine, but it didn't have to be. So what we're going to see is a phenomenon of writing. Remember, this is a writing class, so every time we're talking about writing in Hebrew or writing in Aramaic, we're going to highlight it. This verse here is a good example of something that was written in the text that later, at a later date, they didn't want to say out loud, so they changed it a little bit. So anytime they put those other words, they put them in brackets, and it's called the Korean. Okay. So he's taunting them, and the Rabshak is said in a, loud, in a loud voice, in the language of Judah, hear the words of the dead king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, and on, and on, and on, and on. Basically saying, don't listen to your king. You're all going to die if you do. You better surrender. Okay? <coughs> um, make your peace, blah, 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 blah. Eliakim, look at down here. Let's get down here. Eliakim, uh, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, Yoah, they go back to Hezekiah, and they rip their clothes. And they said, these guys are going to kill us. What should we do? Okay? So Hezekiah comes up and says, he takes the letter of surrender. You write a letter of surrender, and you give it to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah takes the letter, and he puts it on the altar, 
and he prays to God. Right? And he says, um, oh, uh, verse 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, and throne above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, incline your ear, listen to me, open your eyes, hear all the words. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to everyone else. They've hurled the gods into the fire, though they were no gods at all. The words of him in hand were so blah, 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 blah. So now, O oh Lord, save us from his hand. So he, he turns to God, right? And lo and behold, Isaiah shows up. He brings in a prophet to just kind of confirm that he's prayed to God. And Isaiah says, this will be a sign to you. This year you'll eat what grows of itself. The second year what springs after that. The third year so will reap. Basically, your crops are going to continue to grow and you're going to be eaten. Which is a prophecy of what? Destruction or deliverance? Deliverance. You're going to be okay. Therefore, says, uh, says the Lord, so Isaiah comes and speaks, he shall not come into the city, shoot an arrow just right over there, come the pole with a shield, or cast uh, a cast of a seed ramp against it. By the way, uh, by way that he came, he shall return. He is not come into the city, says the Lord. Why? According to the text. For I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. It all goes back to that promise to David. So according to Isaiah, who's a prophet, God's not going to let this city be destroyed, even though these guys have destroyed every other city. Okay? God's not going to let the city be destroyed. And then according to the biblical text, verse 36, the angel of the Lord uh, set out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. From morning dawn, they were all dead bodies. King Sennacherib of Assyria left, went home, lived at Nineveh, blah, blah, blah. And while he was worshiping in the house uh, of his God, he and uh, his sons uh, killed him with a sword. So he not only did he lose his battle, he went back home and his sons murdered him, a little coup. Okay? Now, tell me, what are you going to think about Jerusalem if this happens? The mighty Assyrian Empire has wiped out everyone else. And they come to Jerusalem and they've really got no... No way out. So he prays to God, and all of a sudden, according to the biblical text of these, an angel comes and kills 140,000 people, and they all go back and retreat. And once he gets home, the king is, is murdered by his own people. What are you going to start to think about Jerusalem if that's the case, if that really happened? This city is, it starts with an I, inviolable. Second Samuel said it may have been the promise to David that a Jerusalem and a, and, a, and, a, and a son of David will always send the throne. But this episode in the late 8th century is really what got the ball rolling for this understanding of Jerusalem as God's city, the city that will never, ever fall. God will always protect this city because of David. And the myth grows bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay? Incredibly important. The promise to David... Hezekiah's uh, defense of Jerusalem uh, versus the Assyrians. Any questions? Now, how do we know that that's really what happened? How do we know that we know that Jerusalem was spared? There's no, there's no destruction layer in Jerusalem at that time. Okay. How do we know the reason? The answer is we don't. Sennacherib also made a prison bragging about all of his comfort. Remember, this is the king that, according to the Bible, was defeated and retreated. Okay. He makes a prison, uh, a prison, a, a monumental inscription, and he's bragging. And he talks about 46 cities of Judah that were destroyed or, and or exiled, including kind of the big military center of Akish. Okay. And he does mention Hezekiah. And what he says about Hezekiah the Jew, I trapped him like a bird in a cage, which is a reference to what? Putting him under siege. You put your army all around him, he's a bird in a cage. But I don't remember Sennacherib saying that he killed him. So here again, you have archaeological confirmation outside of the biblical text that says that Hezekiah survived this ordeal. Jerusalem may have been a bird in a cage, um, but they survived. 
So you've got different interpretations of this, this event. I told you this is the big monumental event that led to this tradition of Jerusalem as an inviolable city. From uh, royal annals of 2 Kings, the Josianic historian, which is another biblical writer uh, in 2 Kings 18. And then, of course, you also get it in the Greek uh, historian Herodotus and even Lord Byron. And I put this on the website, we won't read it here. And the 18th century CE wrote a poem about how Hezekiah escaped this. Now, of course, King Sennacherib will say uh, in his report of this incident that, okay, we put these guys under siege, but we were fighting 30 different wars. Jerusalem is nothing. It's out in the middle of nowhere. It's not that important. So we pulled the army away from Judah. Uh, they paid us very well. They, they agreed. They surrendered. They agreed to pay us. But we didn't, so we spared them. Right? And then I sent my armies elsewhere. And of course, he goes on to die later. But from the Hebrew Bible standpoint, that wasn't the king's discretion to pull the soldiers away and go fight somewhere else. That was a miracle. The Bible is going to interpret this deliverance as a miracle from God. And as for evidence of whether or not the angels struck down, we don't know. We, don't know. we just know that Jerusalem survived, the Assyrians disappeared and were later conquered elsewhere, and Jerusalem is known as this city that survived the Assyrian onslaught.
that if you if you thought somebody was going to do something, ah, oh, the temple war, the temple war, the temple war, and all of a sudden God was with you, like a magic spell, if you will. And Jeremiah is saying, no, that's not how it works. You, you can't act like an evil person and then just call upon the call upon God and He delivers you. That's not how it works. So I want you, to, I want to point this one out um, because it, it does give us evidence that the temple had grown to such a, a mythical status that people would just call upon the temple and they thought they would be saved. 